with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Robots podcast. My name is Jana, and in this episode, we're tackling the controversial topic of how robots could affect jobs and the economy. A debate has been raging among roboticists, social scientists, economists, and others. A debate about whether and how robotics are going to impact on job markets and global economies. On the one hand, there are those believing that robotics is going to create jobs and bring prosperity. On the other, there are those who fear robots will replace human workers and lead to job losses and poverty. Professor Mike Osborne of Oxford is an information engineer interested in machine learning, intelligent systems and societal challenges resulting from robotics. In his current work, he analyzes how intelligent algorithms might soon substitute for human workers and predicts the resulting impact on employment. Our interviewer, Andrew Vaziri, spoke to Mike about the ways in which his models predict technology will change job markets and economies. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. So um, my name is Michael Osborne, and I'm the Dyson Associate Professor in Machine Learning in uh, the Department of Engineering Science at the University of Oxford. So that's one hat I wear as kind of someone working in machine learning, developing uh, intelligent algorithms. But I also have another hat that might be relevant to our conversation as the co-director of the Oxford Martin Program on Technology and Employment, within which we're studying the impact of machine learning algorithms and robotics on employment. When you study technology and employment, what does that mean? Right. So obviously, uh, many people are starting to get the idea that Uh, sophisticated algorithms are taking on some of the routine decision-making tasks that might once have been performed by human beings. So um, there is this awareness that this is a topic which deserves further study, and we're bringing to the topic kind of exactly the kinds of machine learning algorithms whose impact we're studying. So we're looking at economic data characterizing the changing nature of the workforce, what skills are required, what skills are becoming a little bit redundant with the increasing sophistication of these algorithms, and using that to forecast with a little bit of humility what we're likely to see panning out over the next 20 years. One, one paper on that topic that caught my attention was the future of employment, how susceptible are jobs to computerization? So b before we answer that question, what exactly does computerization mean? So computerization was a term invented by economists, so you have to take its definition with a, you know, a certain awareness of its original context, but it's come to mean any kind of replacement of a human worker by an automated solution. So we tend to use the words computerization, automation, interchangeably. It could mean the use of a machine learning algorithm to replace um, a decision-making task in a web-based context, but it could equally mean the replacement of a worker on a factory uh, production line by a robot. How susceptible are jobs to computerization? <laughs> right. So the headline finding from our original study 
from 2013 was that 47% of current U.S. employment might be at high risk of automation over the next 20 years. But um, it's worth kind of putting a few caveats on that figure, if you'll permit me. So the first is that what we're considering there is just the technological possibilities for automation. So we were just thinking about the rate of technological advancement and thinking at what point that technology might catch up with the skill requirements for particular jobs. So we weren't considering, uh, for example, non-technological obstacles to automation. And in the real world, we know, of course, those are significant concerns. So there will be pop uh, popular opposition, there will be regulatory concerns. There will certainly be um, differential wage levels, so a lot of robots are quite expensive, human workers in some cases are quite cheap. And, of course, that will influence whether or not an automated solution is chosen for a particular task. The World Economic Forum met earlier this year in Davos, Switzerland, and one phrase in particular was uh, a theme of the conference. They said the fourth revolution. What does that mean? How is this change something on the scale of a, of a revolution like we might have seen in the past? Right, so what they're talking about there is the tradition of industrial revolutions in particular. And I think a lot of people now are starting to see the kind of rapid change in technological capabilities associated with machine learning as akin to the rapid pace of technological change in the Industrial Revolution in England. And um, I think it's a useful analogy in many ways because, of course, that technological change uh, back in the English Industrial Revolution did kick off a whole range of societal changes. There were a host of new institutions created to cope with the changing nature of work associated with the introduction of those technologies. And I think we should probably be thinking that uh, what we're seeing now in technological change is likely to kick off a similar um, wave of institutional change and societal change as a result. Let's talk a little bit about the modeling that you did in order to, to achieve this result. Uh, in the past, classically, how did people evaluate the effect that technology would have on employment? In the past, people have thought about automation as predominantly affecting routine manual labor. So for most of the history of the 20th century, that's what people have meant when they've talked about automation, when they've studied automation, the replacement of uh, factory workers, for example, by robots, in the Industrial Revolution, before that, it was physical machines replacing physical labor. But of course, that has changed with the introduction of machine learning. We're now able to replace not just manual labor, but cognitive labor. And of course, that change has necessitated the use of new tools within economics to study what is happening. So the real um, change here is that the distinction between what is automatable and what is not automatable has become a lot more blurred. So the previous stark distinction between manual labor and cognitive labor that divided routine, that sorry, divided automatable work from non-automatable work is dissipating. And so now we're having to look at much more detailed representations of the skill requirements for occupations in determining what is automatable and what is not. And how did you break those down into things that you could actually quantify? Right. So in our initial work, we were drawing upon data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the US, which through ONET, which is a particular uh, 
combination of surveys and interviews with uh, experts in particular industries has produced this long and really interesting list of quantitative measures of the different skills required for 700 different occupations, a little more than 700 in the US. So this means for, um, say, accountants and auditors, we have numbers between 0 and 100 describing just how much persuasion they need or just how much finger dexterity they need or how much originality. So this is a really rich and interesting data set. We're by no means the first people to look at it. There's been a lot of really interesting economics uh, drawing upon that data. But what we did was to look at it as a means of distinguishing automatable jobs from non-automatable jobs. Our feeling was that those quantitative measures might be predictive of a job's susceptibility to automation. So the way our analysis proceeded was to create what's known as a training set in the jargon of machine learning. So a training set is a means of teaching a machine learning algorithm how to do a particular task. And in this context, it was a set of 70 occupations of the original 700 about which we were most confident in its automatability. So we, uh, by studying the literature and talking to experts, we held a workshop in Oxford, pulled together a list of 70 occupations that were most emblematically either non-automatable or automatable. And then we handed those occupations, that training set, over to our algorithm, which it used as the basis of um, learning the characteristics of jobs that were non-automatable versus those that were automatable. So one result came out fairly immediately. It turns out that jobs that have a high originality score, that's one of those descriptions of the skill requirements for an occupation in the owner data set, are relatively immune to automation. So we saw with a reasonable degree of clarity that the more original an occupation is, the less susceptible it is to automation. Could you give us some examples of, of highly automatable jobs and highly non-automatable jobs? Absolutely. So uh, one occupation that was deemed to be uh, completely non-automatable was the clergy. There we go. The... <laughs> judgment of the algorithm was that the kind of social intelligence, I guess, that a member of the priesthood requires to do their job is not something that can be automated. An occupation that came out as highly automatable was that of accountants and auditors, where the kind of routine uh, storing, accessing, and low-level processing of data, financial data in particular, that an auditor might do was something that could be conceivably automated using sophisticated machine learning algorithms. So um, let me just take a step back and uh, talk about the high-level distinction between automatable and non-automatable distinctions. I mentioned earlier that originality came out quite clearly as a characteristic that rendered an occupation quite secure. The second, which I mentioned in the context of the clergy, was that of social intelligence. And so we see both of those as what we call as bottlenecks to automation. So creativity and social intelligence are the kinds of um, skill requirements that we would see as most difficult to automate over a horizon of, say, 15, 20 years. So if you look at the list of occupations that we had for the US, that comes out relatively clearly. Occupations that are uh, relatively um, routine, either in a cognitive or manual way, 
tends to come out as automatable. Some further occupations would include uh, truck drivers, where the ability of self-driving vehicles in particular might soon uh, serve as a means of automating those tasks. We saw occupations, even in the legal profession, coming out as automatable, so paralegals in particular are in many cases already being uh, outperformed by algorithmic means of digging through large amounts of documents, performing document review. Um, in a similar way, there are algorithms now that can prepare contracts and even answer quite sophisticated uh, multi-jurisdictional legal questions. But there are also occupations like waiters and waitresses that came out as automatable, which was a surprise to us actually because Waiters and waitresses were in the training set we'd originally provided to the algorithm, uh, provided to the algorithm as a non-automatable occupation. Our best guess being that um, kind of small talk that a waiter or waitress makes at the table of a customer was something that might not be readily automated. Nonetheless, based on the skill characteristics of a waiter or waitress, the algorithm came back and told us that the probability of automation for a waiter or waitress was 94%, really quite high. And uh, reassuringly, although perhaps not for waiters or waitresses, but reassuringly to us, in the intervening years since 2013, we have seen restaurants begin to do some sort of automation in that space by putting tablets on their tables. So the Zios tablet in particular is a device that's able to take the orders of customers, it's able to take payments, and it's even able to make product recommendations on the basis of banning patterns of other customers. But won't this technology also create new jobs that we, we haven't yet imagined? Absolutely. So we've already seen the emergence of new job titles as a result of technological change. If you look at the last 15 years, we've seen jobs like iOS developers, data scientists, cloud service architects emerging as a result of technological change. I don't want to discount that trend because I, I think obviously there will be a bewildering range of new occupations that are very difficult to foresee at this point emerging as a result of uh, the rate of technological change. But if I were to make one point, it's that it's not necessarily clear that the people who are put out of work by technological change are going to be able to keep pace with the rate of technological change and in moving into those new occupations. So to be completely concrete, uh, it's not 100% clear to me that all the truck drivers who might be put out of work as autonomous vehicle technology becomes more sophisticated are going to be able to find work as data scientists. And I say that because one finding from our original study was this very clear trend between skill level and automatability. So the more skilled a worker was, according to the... Um, proportion of workers in an occupation who have at least a bachelor's degree or according to how much those workers are paid, the more skilled they are, the less susceptible they are to automation, meaning that the burden of automation is likely to rest most heavily upon the shoulders of the least skilled, who, as I say, might not be ideally placed to move into those new occupations. In the face of the possibility of this increased inequality, what are some solutions people have proposed? Right, okay, so this is, of course, the million-dollar question. Uh, it's something uh, that's been posed to us many times. At this point, I normally have to say that, of course, I'm an engineer, and uh, the extent to which you want to trust my advice on policy discussions 
is probably going to be fairly limited. But um, I think the, the general message is that we don't want to uh, kind of eliminate technological change. I think that would be a mistake. I work in the field of machine learning, and ultimately I wouldn't do so unless I believe that the net societal uh, benefits outweigh the negatives of uh, these technologies. I think there is going to be an enormous amount of wealth, an enormous amount of well-being generated by the sophistication of these algorithms and robots. But to me, it's important that that wealth, that well-being is shared equitably. So that's the direction I'd like policy to point. It's tackling that inequality problem that you highlight. How we do that is something that I'd rather leave to an economist than uh, an engineer. But, um, you know, there are some really interesting proposals in this space. And if your listeners would like to find out more, I'd point them to a book called Inequality by Anthony Atkinson, a colleague here in Oxford, part of the Oxford Martin School, as am I, who um, spends two-thirds of his book detailing really quite, uh, you know, well-thought-out, well-reasoned proposals for, for tackling these problems that may result as a consequence of technological change. Currently in the United States, we're coming up on the uh, primaries, and so I'm sure that lots of people are considering uh, policy questions, and, and this will be one more that they'll have to do some research on. Uh, but I do want to ask, is education part of the solution? Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think our consideration of the bottleneck to automation is an important uh, factor to take into account when thinking about how education might change. So as I say, we point to creativity and social intelligence as being the skills that are least likely to be automated. So if we're thinking about education, I think we want to be thinking about how we can instill those creative and social skills into the next generation of workers. To me, the best way to instill those kind of skills is not in the classrooms that we have today, classrooms that were, you know, that are perhaps best thought of as training workers for factory production lines. That was the model of employment that was dominant throughout the 20th century, but it's certainly not going to be the model that is dominant throughout the 21st. So what I'd like us to see in education is move towards more interactive education. And I think we have quite a successful model for that actually here in Oxford and in our sister university in Cambridge, if those in Cambridge will forgive me saying so. So the way we teach here is in what's known as a tutorial. It means me as a tutor sitting down with one or two students working in a very small class environment uh, listening in detail to their questions about a topic, um, provoking the students with uh, particular questions to test their understanding, and of course they test my understanding. So, you know, obviously that's an expensive way to teach. It requires a lot of teacher time, but here actually I think technology might be able to help, and this is part of a broader discussion about how we might use the advancing rate of technological change to our advantage in delivering education, We've seen the rise of MOOCs, massive open online courses, as a means of delivering information at a scale completely unlike what we've been able to deliver in the past. Students now can log on to a MOOC wherever they are in the world and get access to really quite high-quality lecture material and course note material. But the even more exciting thing is to use the power of intelligent algorithms to deliver some of that interactivity in education. So um, what MOOCs are beginning to think about is 
how to use the data gathered from how students perform in a course, which questions they get wrong, what are the predictors of whether or not they'll get that question wrong and how they get it wrong, to tailor course content to the particular needs of particular students. And if we can do that, I think we can begin to you know, instill exactly the kinds of creative social skills, develop the rounded depth of understanding that's required to succeed uh, looking forward in the workforce ahead. All that said, one final point, of course, is that I think it'd be a mistake to believe that um, education is going to end with high school uh, looking forwards. I think as the rate of technological advance only accelerates, we're going to all need to continue to uh, update our skills as we move through life. And here technology is, again, a real route to providing that. I think um, even if we can't provide classrooms throughout um, a person's career and life, those, those workers will, if afforded sufficient time, be able to make use of online platforms to hone their skills, to update their uh, portfolio, and um, thereby, as I say, move into whatever new jobs seem to be emerging as a result of technological change. Since you first published on this subject, it's, it's been uh, you know, three, four years, perhaps more, and what response have you received from, from uh, policymakers or for people who might be able to implement responses to this? Right. So, yeah, the first thing to say is that there has been a um, kind of broad consensus amongst those we've been speaking to that this is the real issue. And to be completely honest, that came as a bit of surprise uh, to us. I mean, we thought... Um, sitting in our little ivory tower, you know, as I say, I work in the field of machine learning, but the considerations of what our little algorithms might be doing um, to the broader workforce might have been seen as a little bit sci-fi, that uh, this might not have been perceived as a problem that was imminent and real and something that actually deserved policy response. But I'm very glad to say that that has not been the case. There has been a range of different people who have been trying to think about this issue, um, how, you know, how it might pan out, in particular for inequality. But unfortunately, I'd have to say that so far we haven't seen concerted policy pushes to try and tackle it. And that's understandable because most policymakers work on a very short horizon. This is still perceived as an issue that's just a little bit further away. People have realised that it's not 50 years away, it's maybe... 10 years away, but even 10 years away is a long horizon to consider for someone who's currently in political office. So um, I would say this is certainly something that policymakers are beginning to think about based on the interactions we've had, but not something that I would um, be able to say has received the really concerted push that's needed to tackle it in a kind of fundamental way. So we, we've talked about some of the risks in particular the economic risks of the of the economic inequality that could arise, but there are some possible opportunities. I've read in in one of your reports with Citibank that this could possibly lead to a life of leisure. What does that mean? What does that mean? Right. So the the kind of utopian view here is that um, these algorithms are ultimately automating work that is in some senses below the dignity of a human being. I think there's a lot to that. I think if we can automate something, we probably should. I don't know that 
anyone should really be saddled with something that can be replaced by a, a machine. I think, um, you know, these creative and social skills that are highlighted before as being the things that are most difficult to automate are exactly the things that humans most enjoy doing. I think in our leisure time, in our hobby time, we tend to pursue activities that are fundamentally quite creative. We might paint or join a choir. They might be, well, they're certainly going to be social to some degree. We join clubs. And um, one thing we haven't discussed, but that I might just flag up, is a third bottleneck, which is that of autonomous manipulation in unstructured environments. And of course, I'm sure many of your listeners working in robotics would be quite familiar with that challenge. Even though we have made big strides in perception and manipulation, we've still got a long way to go before we're able to achieve full human-level general performance in those kinds of tasks. And I bring that up now because I think a lot of the things we do in leisure do have some character of interacting with complex physical environments. Certainly sports fulfill that kind of category. If you're trying to kick a ball or, um, I don't know, uh, even run over varied terrain, that's not something that's very easy to automate and is, in fact, not something we'd want to automate because, at least in those leisure activities, it's something we enjoy so much. So what I'm getting at there is that there is the scope of automation to improve the quality of our lives enormously, but the question on the other side, of course, is how we fund that lifestyle. How are we going to share the wealth that the owners of these algorithms and robots are generating to those who perhaps don't have the skills to participate in those future workforces, which you know, are necessarily going to become more competitive as not only the ability of algorithms to substitute for human workers improves, but the increasingly networked nature of our planet uh, advances as workers in one part of the world are able to substitute for workers all over the globe. So that's the challenge. It's certainly possible that we'll all be living a life of ease as a result of these technologies, but how are we going to get the wealth to ensure that people are actually able to enjoy that lifestyle? The different bottlenecks that we established, you just mentioned manipulation, but there was also social intelligence and creative intelligence. I know a lot of our listeners might be interested. Do you know out of this 47% of jobs, uh, how many of them actually required some physical component so that it would not just be a, an algorithm replacing a job, but rather a robot replacing a job? Uh, it's difficult to say for any particular occupation to what extent its automatability or non-automatability was due to any one of those bottlenecks. And this is perhaps part of a broader discussion that might be of interest to your listeners. So the way we did the analysis is using a machine learning algorithm. And of course, that machine learning algorithm was looking at not just each of the individual skill uh, descriptors of an occupation separately, but bringing them together into a whole. It was looking at the relationships between those different uh, features. So it's, it, we don't have the quantitative evidence to say to what degree um, for any particular occupation it's uh, finger dexterity or manual dexterity was the deciding factor in its automatability or non-automatability. Um, I think uh, if I can speculate, it's the automation we're seeing is largely a result of the advances in machine learning, that is the substitution of routine decision-making tasks rather than the substitution of routine manual tasks. 
I think um, there are a lot of occupations that involve those kind of routine manual tasks that are going to be safe for some time to come. Hairdressers and gardeners are perhaps the most representative, representative examples. That brings up an interesting ethical question. If the machine learning algorithms that we often use are a little bit difficult to peer into and understand why they're making certain decisions, what happens when we make them accountable for important tasks? This is a fascinating discussion. I'm, I'm glad we got the chance to uh, tackle it. But I can, the first thing to say is that not all machine learning machine learning algorithms are completely opaque. And there's a lot of really principled, fundamental work in machine learning which does deliver the kind of transparency and insight that a user would want to ensure the trust in that algorithm. Um, that said, it is true that the state of the art, particularly in deep neural networks, something that has rightfully been gathering a lot of attention in the last few years and delivering really impressive performance improvements, um, those deep neural networks aren't necessarily as transparent and as interrogable as we would like. That the decisions they're making, the classifications they're making, aren't necessarily based on um, you know, very interpretable rules. So this is, in some sense, both the power and the curse of machine learning. At some point, we're going to have to move beyond the ability of a human to understand what that algorithm is doing. That's how we achieve these really uh, impressive performance improvements. If the algorithm is completely transparent, we would be limited to relatively simple decision rules, the kind of expert systems of the 1980s as perhaps the most um, emblematic example. So this is, in some senses, a necessary consequence of advances in the field that we're moving towards more complex models. And while they can be made somewhat transparent, we are going to have to, at some point, accept that they're doing something that we don't fully understand. Now, I think the way we tackle that is to, even if we don't understand the means by which these algorithms are making decisions, I think we need to be completely sure that the loss function that those algorithms are using in making those decisions is one that's aligned with our own interests. What is a, a loss function in this context? So a loss function is the set of goals that an algorithm has. So I don't think it's going to be completely possible to know everything that an algorithm knows. That's the reality of those algorithms working on big data sets that a human simply does not have the capacity to process. But what we can do is equip those algorithms with a set of desiderata, a set of goals that are perfectly matched to those of the designer. So we need to ensure that what these algorithms are setting out to achieve is something that we actually want to achieve, even if we aren't able to say a priori exactly how they should achieve it. So. I don't want to make it sound like this challenge is a trivial one. In fact, in a lot of cases, it's quite difficult for us to explicate what our goals are. But nonetheless, that's the right challenge to be tackling. We need to be thinking about the, um, as I say, loss function or utility function of an algorithm and ensuring that it matches the, the goals of its human designer. I would like to go back to a, a point we mentioned earlier that we might not want to saddle people with work that can be tackled by a machine. But aren't there a lot of people trying to make creative 
uh, algorithms, and there's even been some success in, in tasks that are somewhat formulaic, like composing classical music? Sure. So, I mean, first thing to say is that even in these bottlenecks, automation is not black or white. We are making progress in computational creativity. We are making progress in computational social intelligence. But the state of the art is still a long way behind human-level performance. So in social intelligence, we've got chatbots, which are able to mimic the kind of routine small talk that a human makes, but we're not able to, for example, design an algorithm that's able to persuade or negotiate or mentor really high-level social functions. In creativity, you're right. You can have an algorithm that will churn out an endless sequence of songs, but it's still quite difficult to teach the algorithm the difference between a really um, amazing piece of classical music, one that inspires and thrills as music really should, and something that is relatively routine and is ultimately not worthy of anyone's listening attention. So the difference between um, what we're able to do now and where we want to go is the depth of tacit knowledge that characterizes human-level performance in those tasks. So in that creativity example, it's very difficult for me to say what it is about a particular piece of music that I like. I couldn't necessarily design in code um, an algorithm to reproduce those features. So for that reason, that task is still relatively non-automatable. You recommended that I don't ask an engineer about policy solutions, so I'll ask an engineer about engineered solutions. How can we use machine learning and artificial intelligence to create a more just world? Well, the first thing I think we should be doing as machine learning experts is using our techniques to better understand the world around us. And I see our program in the Oxford Martin School, uh, it's titled Technology and Employment, as one step towards that. So we're using machine learning algorithms to look at economic data and uh, pick the kind of characteristics of jobs that are most automatable to better understand what the rapid pace of technological change is doing to the workforce. And of course that can feed into policy decisions made by people who are, are actually better placed to make those decisions. So that, that's one role I think for machine learning in this um, general process to better understand what is happening in uh, the economic world in which we live. But it can also, of course, be used to design amazing new products which benefit all. I think machine learning has been at the heart of a lot of um, the improvements in our lives that aren't necessarily well measured by economic data. So it's behind a lot of the amazing apps that we have on our phones, behind the amazing services we uh, get for free on the web. And, you know, I think we shouldn't discount the improvements in the quality of our life delivered by those services. And that's very much uh, a result of machine learning technology. Thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. And um, thanks very much yourself. And that's the end of today's episode. Visit us at robohub.org for access to all our past episodes, as well as many feature articles and discussions on the impact of robotics on societies. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Jobs with 
Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.